well, there's a lot of historical and, of course, archaeological and scientific and circumstantial evidence even that supports the validity of Scripture. In fact, more and more of that is being discovered all the time. We talked about a lot of that back in our uh, In the Beginning series in Genesis months ago. And yet perhaps the most powerful evidence of all to the validity of Scripture is not scientific or historical or archaeological or circumstantial. I would argue that the greatest proof of the truth of the gospel is not found uh, under a microscope or through a telescope. It's not found at a dig site or a museum. The single most compelling and convincing evidence of the validity of Scripture and the gospel specifically is found in the human heart that has been completely transformed by it. The person who's accepted the gospel as truth and encountered Jesus Christ through it is changed. He's different than he was before. She's different than she was before. And that change is undeniable, not only to the person who's experienced that transformation, but to everyone around them as well. The greatest proof of the gospel is the people who are changed by it. And if that's true, then we should be clear about how exactly they're different than they were before. What is the actual evidence of a changed heart? <coughs> Jesus explained it very clearly to his friends. He said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. And of course, we know that in Matthew 22, um, Jesus taught that the greatest commandment was to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the, the second greatest was to love your neighbor as yourself. But when it comes to the best evidence that we can possibly provide for the validity of the gospel, Jesus makes it clear. He doesn't say, they will know you are true disciples of mine when you show them the best historical evidence. Or when science finally proves the existence of God. Or when Noah's Ark is discovered. No, he says they will know because of the way that you love each other. Our behavior toward one another, which is merely an expression of what is in our hearts, is what tells the rest of the world whether or not what we say we believe is really true. This is huge because... We can fight for all kinds of causes. We can be pro-life. We can support traditional marriage. We can be politically active. We can go on missions, trips, and support lots of ministry in many ways. But if we aren't willing to fight for each other, our message won't make it past the front steps of the church. The Apostle Paul spells it out in the first three verses of his first biblical letter to the Corinthian church. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, Paul understood that without love, his ministry, all of the sacrifice, all of the hardship and the suffering, it would all be for nothing, which is precisely why he never gave up, despite the horrendous circumstances that he faced over and over again in his ministry. It was all because of how much he loved God and others. And that was so obvious 
to everyone that encountered him that the only way that those who didn't want his message to spread could keep it from others was to try and lock him up in prison until they could figure out a way to kill him. But as it turns out, that didn't work either. And so as we continue reading and studying our way through the book of Acts in our sermon series, the Acts of the Apostles, and when you begin to understand Paul's motivation for doing the things that he did in, in the light of his love for others in that context, it may revolutionize your own concept of serving God. It may change the way the church does ministry, in fact, and it will certainly make a statement to the culture around us that what we believe and who we follow is in fact very real. And so today we're going to talk about what it looks like to truly love other people. And look, the stakes couldn't be higher. Because although the church today is, I believe, getting better at one aspect of this, I also believe that at the same time, she's turning her back on an equally important aspect of what it means to truly love others. And so today we'll be working our way through the 24th chapter of the book of Acts in a message entitled, Love Tells the Truth. And as we go, we'll try to answer the question, how much do we really love each other? Okay, so let's turn there together now, if you like. We'll have it on the screen, of course, as well. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Paul's just been successfully transported to one of Herod's palaces from uh, Jerusalem to Caesarea under the, uh, the escort of Roman guards. In fact, uh, his escort comprised roughly half of the entire a Roman military force in Jerusalem because there was a plot to ambush and kill Paul on the way that had been uncovered and reported to the Roman authorities there in Jerusalem. So Paul is now being held in Herod's Praetorium, which was a palace built by Herod the Great for himself in Caesarea, and now it's being used as a residence for the Roman governor there, Felix, and of course it's a holding site for Paul as well. So let's pick up our story where we left off last week in Acts chapter 24. Verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg, beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming all these things were so. Okay, depending on what version of the Bible you read, you may have noticed that verse 7 is missing from the ESV, which is the version that we use here, because that's the version that Jesus reads. Oh, it's just a joke. I'm kidding. Uh, but in, in all seriousness, verse 7 is missing, because the earliest and most reliable manuscripts that we have don't have verse 7 in them. And because the ESV is one of the most literal English translations that exists, verse 7 is omitted. But to satisfy our curiosity, verse 7 simply says, But the chief captain Lysias came and with great violence took him, referring to Paul, out of our hands. Okay, so if verse 7 is legitimate, it only further underscores the fact that Paul's accusers were twisting the truth to get their way. Because we know, of course, that Lysias saved Paul's life from the Jews who were trying to kill him. Okay, and Tertullus, 
was a Jewish attorney who was enlisted by the Sanhedrin to prosecute prosecute this case uh, against Paul and apparently his hypocrisy was boundless whether whether you keep verse 7 in there or not because first of all the Jews absolutely hated the fact that their nation was being occupied by the Romans there was uh, no love lost between them secondly Felix was well known as anything but peaceful he was an infamously ruthless leader with no tolerance for the Jews particularly when there was a dispute among them as they as was happening here and yet Tertullus opens his arguments against Paul by greeting the most excellent Felix and he thanks him for all the years of peace and insight and reform that he had brought to the Jews which of course was a complete joke okay but integrity was never a hallmark of the religious Jews who were after Paul from the beginning of his ministry and of course Tertullus was not only a part of the religious Jewish establishment but he was a lawyer to boot and that's pretty much how lawyers have been acting for the past 2,000 years or so right I'm sure there are honest lawyers and maybe someday I'll get to meet one but for the most part some things never change and so all of the flowery greetings from Tertullus really come as, as no surprise and then he lays out his case before the governor and if you pay attention while reading this you'll notice the, the cunning use of language by the Jews legal counsel back in chapter 21 verse 28 when Paul was initially arrested he was accused of defiling the temple by bringing a Gentile into the inner chamber with him which we know was patently false and then in chapters 22 and 23 uh, as Paul is brought before the council, we see that they weren't able to make that charge stick, of course, because it wasn't true. So Tertullus subtly changes the charge from claiming that Paul did profane the temple, which is what he was charged with originally, to here in verse 6 where he claims that Paul tried to profane the temple. In other words, uh, we couldn't prove that Paul actually did anything wrong, so instead we'll just accuse him of trying to do something wrong. Not to mention that he completely leaves out any hint of the angry mob that was trying to tear Paul apart and instead refers to Paul as a plague in verse 5. That's the Greek word loimos. It literally means pestilence. So he completely distorts the truth to paint a very different picture of Paul as this blasphemous peg, this pest plague, a pestilence on their society. And it's just like, to me, what we see and hear so often today. Uh, from so many of our politicians, who are mostly lawyers, by the way. Uh, they play with words. They, they twist them to manipulate people to their own ends, regardless of who they hurt or what they pervert in the end, be it truth, integrity, justice. It doesn't matter as long as they get what they want. And I'm telling you, that behavior is the very essence of evil. And it is the exact opposite of what love does. Okay? Love tells the truth. Love tells the truth even when it's hard to take. Love tells the truth even when it's not popular. Love tells the truth because it's the only path to freedom from everything that's wrong with this world. And Jesus was talking to a group of Jews who believed in him and he said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 8, 31 and 32. And Paul in his captivity in prison, in chains, he understood this freedom more than his captors would ever be able to grasp. Truth is the only pathway to freedom, which means if we love people, we will tell them the truth. Okay? Paul didn't do all that he did because he was trying to somehow earn God's approval. 
That's not something that can be earned. Paul didn't endure beatings and persecution in prison to somehow get closer to God through his own sacrifice, like some kind of penance. Paul did what he did because of his love for God and for other people and, and an insatiable desire to see people experience the freedom that he had experienced himself, which only comes by the way of the truth. Okay? If the gospel is indeed true, that means that everything that Jesus taught is also true because that's part of the gospel. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Now, if we truly love others, how could we possibly keep that bit of truth from them? Right? The simple answer is we cannot. We unequivocally, unequivocally cannot claim to love other people and at the same time refuse to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. We can't. We cannot, we cannot claim to love other people and at the same time refuse to share the truth of the gospel with them. If we truly have the love of God inside of us, love for Him and love for others, we will be compelled to tell them the truth. This is precisely why Paul was willing to endure so much. Even when his own personal safety and future were most in question, yet he, he always told the truth. Listen to what he says as we keep reading our story here uh, from verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. There's no pandering here on Paul's part. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem, worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, that is the way of the gospel, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets." having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains, Paul says, to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. In other words, I always take great care to tell the truth. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, doing exactly what a good Jew would do, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, the Jews from Ephesus, they ought to be here before you and, and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. So even the part where Paul... And I like to think it's a little tongue-in-cheek because he got them all stirred up, you know. It was like a hornet's nest, what he refers to here in verse 21. He even owns up to that. Paul's completely honest before the council. So, so Paul, he's standing here in front of one of the most ruthless leaders of his day. In fact, in fact Felix was removed from office by the new emperor after the death of Claudius because the new emperor felt that Felix was too brutal of a leader. The new emperor that removed Felix was Nero. Okay? Nero was the guy, according to Tacitus, Suetonius, and Cassius Dio, and other historians of antiquity. They say that he had Christians dipped in oil and then burned alive to light his garden at night while he mingled with his friends. We can only imagine how bad Felix must have been 
if Nero felt Felix was too cruel to remain in office. And here's Paul standing before this Felix, being confronted by the high priest and the elders and a slimy lawyer, all who want him dead. And Paul does nothing to sugarcoat his words. He doesn't try to butter up the governor with insincerity. He doesn't pad his story with half-truths to try and paint himself in a better light. He simply stands there and he tells the truth. Not because he was defiant either, or because he had a death wish. Paul told the truth because out of love, he desperately wanted people to accept the gospel and follow Jesus Christ. When he was initially arrested by the Romans in Jerusalem, back in chapters 21 and 22, which was actually a rescue mission by the Romans because the angry mob of Jews was trying to kill Paul, the Romans were carrying Paul, literally carrying him away to save his life. And Paul asks them to stop and give him an opportunity to address those same people who were trying to kill him. And, and what Paul does is he shares his testimony with them. He shares the truth because of an overwhelming compassion and love for people, even the people that hated him, knowing that the truth would cause many of them to hate him even more. Okay, there's a lesson for the church here. I remember like 25 plus years ago going to church with long hair and earrings and tattoos because that was cool and I was young and I sang in a rock and roll band. But I also loved Jesus and I was genuinely a good kid. I know you probably don't believe that. You can ask mom and dad. I was a good kid. And although there were church folks then who loved me just like I was, there were plenty who didn't. I remember vividly being told all kinds of things about myself from other people who made all kinds of decisions about what I must have been like because of how I looked. They didn't know me. They had no interest in getting to know me. They simply wrote me off because of my appearance. And they were more than happy to share their insights about me to me and to everyone else who would listen, even though their insights were completely wrong. That kind of behavior drives people away from the body of Christ. All that does to serve is to run people away from the church because it is antithetical to the teachings of Christ. It is the opposite of what Jesus modeled for us. Fortunately, the church has come a long way since then. We have. Obviously, there will always be some elements of the church that reject people based on their appearances or other first impressions. But by and large, we've made a lot of progress in that area. And because there were enough people who always did accept me, and love me no matter how I looked or what kind of music I listened to, I'm here today. And I'm more in love with the church than ever. And so all that is great. But on the flip side, there is an ever-increasing uh, trend, evidence of that trend, based on the nature and volume of popular Christian literature and teachings that I see today, that suggests that the church has become so enamored with the idea of being accepted by pop culture that we're abandoning the elements of the gospel that have the highest potential to offend those who may disagree with it. Okay, we've swung the pendulum all the way the other direction. There seems to be a real fear with an increasing segment of the American church today of being rejected by the current culture to the point that we're willing to try and reinterpret some elements of the gospel or simply omit parts of it altogether so as to avoid controversy. The problem with that is the gospel is and always has been controversial. Right? It's a stumbling block 
to the Jews and, and folly to the Gentiles, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty three. It's a rock of offense, according to Peter, who was quoting Isaiah in 1 Peter 2.8. The gospel is not, nor was it ever meant to be, an easy message. It's, it's certainly good news, without question, but not easy. Not at all. The gospel challenges us to abandon everything that is contrary to Christ's teachings. Not accept everything so no one will be offended. The gospel challenges us to pick up our cross, which means to be willing to embrace God's will for your life no matter the cost. It doesn't guarantee us material prosperity or personal comfort and security. The gospel challenges us to renounce every part of our previous lives and follow Jesus Christ alone. That's what Jesus teaches us in the latter part of Luke chapter 14. And if the church is not teaching that today, then we're not teaching the whole counsel of God. When we start leaving the parts of the gospel out that we're afraid might offend someone, even though we may think we're doing it out of grace and love, what we're actually doing is the opposite of love. Okay? And it's happening today increasingly. You just read the news. Well-known pastors that have influence over tens of thousands, probably more people who are renouncing portions of the gospel that they don't like and making statements like, hey, we can't base everything we believe on some letters from 2,000 years ago. These are influential pastors in the, in the mainline evangelical church today. There is absolutely no love whatsoever in telling someone that they're really okay in God's eyes when in fact they're not. Love tells the truth. It doesn't water down the truth. It doesn't withhold the truth. And it doesn't alter the truth. Love tells the truth and the gospel. All of it is truth. And I know that's not an easy message. It's a hard message for people to accept. It wasn't meant to be easy. And Paul understood that, and yet he loved people enough to tell them the truth, to share the gospel, even when he knew they would hate him for it. And that's okay, because we don't have to be in love with our culture and to love the people in our culture. Okay, we don't have to love the culture to be in love with the people or to love the people in our culture. Paul never bowed to the pressures of the culture of his day, and neither should we. As a matter of fact... Anytime there was a, a perfect opportunity for Paul to better his situation by simply conceding a little personal conviction in deference to the cultural pressures that were bearing down on him at the time, he never did. He could have very easily gained favor with the Romans and, and with the Jewish authorities simply by toning down his message slightly and maybe giving a well-placed nod to the demands of the culture of his day. But he never did. Because he loved people far too much for that. And we'll see that as we finish our story for today. Verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. 
At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when the two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Okay? To fully understand the depth of Paul's commitment to the truth and his love for people, even for his Roman captors, and his desire to see them come to Christ, we have to fully understand these two people, Felix and Drusilla, and the relationship between each other, okay? We've already talked about Felix's cruel nature, but what was also known at the time about him and his wife, that Felix seduced her away from her husband when they met. Their marriage was formed out of an uncontrolled lust for each other. And of course, we know that Drusilla was a Jew, and so that her religious position uh, stood against the gospel. She, that's probably also how Felix had an accurate knowledge of the way. He was married to a Jew. So here we have Felix, who has proven his unrighteousness through his cruelty that he's displayed throughout his tenure. Uh, total lack of self-control by both Felix and Drusilla, given the nature of their illicit affair and marriage. And then the religious background of Drusilla, which is uh, completely denies the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what does Paul uh, reason with these two about specifically? Verse 25, he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Paul in captivity before two of the worst characters in all of biblical history. As soon as he has an opportunity to talk with them alone, he doesn't make a case for why he should be released. He doesn't pander to their egos. He doesn't flatter them as would have been customary as we saw with the Jewish leaders earlier. Instead, Paul cuts straight to their hearts and minds with pure truth. He talks to them about their personal need for a savior. This is the very picture of love. If Paul didn't care about Felix and Drusilla, why in the world would he ever attempt to address their personal sin? He wouldn't have. He would have watered down the message so as not to offend them. And he would have flattered them to curry their favor so that he would be seen as the, the good guy that he was. But because Paul loved them, he told them the truth. He told them the truth about God and the truth about themselves. And how did they respond? Verse 25, Felix was alarmed. You bet he was. He wasn't used to being confronted like that, particularly by someone who held absolutely no power over him. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. And he did summon Paul for, for two more years. Because again, he was hoping that Paul would cave to the pressure and do the culturally acceptable thing, which was offer Felix a bribe. All Paul had to do is give him a little money and he could have gone home. But once again, Paul's love for people was greater than his concern for himself and popular acceptance, so he offers no bribe. Even as we see Felix completely bow to the cultural pressure at the time and leave Paul in captivity, even though he had no case against him because he wanted to do the Jews a favor, it says. Paul's behavior stands in stark contrast to Felix because Paul wanted to see people saved more than he wanted to be popular. <coughs> We don't have to be in love with the culture to love the people in our culture. We just have to be willing to tell them the truth, even when it costs us something, even when it costs us everything. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, Are there not some to be found who think the highest object of the minister is to attract a multitude and then to please them? Oh my God, how solemnly ought each of us to bewail our sin if we feel we've been guilty in this matter. 
What is it to have pleased men? Is there anything in it that can make our head lie easy on the pillow of our death? Is there anything in it that can give us boldness in the day of judgment when we face thy tribunal, O judge of quick and dead? No, my brethren, we must always take our texts so that we may bear upon our hearers with all our might. And contrary to popular belief, we do not have to be in love with the culture, to love the people in our culture. And yet I've heard many people say to me, actually, and other Christians, that if I don't accept your culture, then I don't accept you as a human being. If I, if I hate your behavior, then I must hate you. People accuse Christians today of hating homosexuals because we hate homosexuality as if it is immoral to somehow separate those two designations. But that's like saying, because I hate poverty, I must hate poor people. That's ridiculous. The very reason that I hate poverty is because I love poor people. And I don't want them to be in poverty any longer. I hate addiction because I love addicts. And I don't want them to be slaves to addiction any longer. I hate sin because I love sinners and I don't want them to be bound in sin any longer. Okay, we don't have to love our culture in order to love the people in our culture, but we do have to be willing to tell them the truth. Because truth and love go hand in hand. They're inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. Love is what put Jesus on the cross. Love is what put Paul in prison. Love is what put Daniel in a den full of hungry lions. Love is what put Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego into a giant furnace. Love's what put 21 uh, Egyptian Christians in Libya on their knees before their executioners who correctly accused them of being people of the cross. See, because true love is not willing to compromise the truth even when it costs us everything. But, but if we say we have love and we compromise the truth, it means nothing. You cannot hate your brother and claim to love God at the same time. 1 John 4, 20 and 21 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Loving your brother means telling him the truth, not avoiding it because you're afraid of hurting his feelings. You know, if someone tells you the truth, even if it stings a little or a lot, we shouldn't get angry. Really, we should be grateful because that is a true expression of love. And, and I'm not talking, by the way, about complaining. I want to make that distinction clear, all right? Airing our grievances to one another. There are people, uh, even in the church, who, who mistake griping and complaining with telling the truth. And that is no more than manipulation, and that's wrong. We're commanded to build one another up, not tear each other down. Complaining is just a subtle, or maybe not so subtle, way of getting something off of our chest without humility, right? The truth says, hey, there's something in your life that I'd like to help you with because I love you and I want to lift you up. And complaining says, hey, there's something about you that bothers me and I really wish you'd change it so I won't be bothered anymore. There's a big difference, right? One is selfless and the other is selfish. Love is selfless. Love tells the truth, okay? And so I pose this question again. How much do we really love each other? 
Well, Pastor, how do we answer that question? We can start with, when was the last time I shared the truth with someone? Well, but I don't know how to share the truth. Well, it's never been easier than it is today in this country where we're still free to do so. Do you know how incredibly privileged we are to be able to pay a few bucks a month and have books that tell the story of the gospel through the lives of our people mailed directly into people's homes and it's legal <coughs> are you sponsoring some of our testimony books because if not I can't imagine an easier way for you to share the truth with people well I don't know how to share the truth well you can invite someone to go to a community group with you of course that means you'll have to go to one yourself it's two hours a week but it's two hours of learning how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ with some friends and good food. Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? It's giving up two hours a week to something that has the potential to change your life and others. And by the way, community groups aren't just about what you get out of it. They're about what you give to others while you're there and what you offer to others by taking them there. And do you know how many people in this world don't have the freedom to do that? And yet we don't take advantage of that freedom because we're tired after work or we just don't feel like going. And now all of you that went to a community group on Wednesday night is breathing a sigh of relief. And all of you that didn't is probably mad at me. But don't be because I'm not complaining. All right? I'm simply bringing it up because what happened the other night was wonderful. And I want everyone here not only to experience it, but I want you to see it for what it is. It's a way for you to share the truth with other human beings who need to hear it. And all you have to do is take someone with you and participate in a Bible study and some conversation and some time of prayer around a meal. Our community groups actually were a smashing success. We had almost 40 people in attendance at three homes the other night, which is wonderful for this size church, especially uh, never having done it before. But there are a lot more than 40 people in this church. There are a lot more than 40 people in our city. And I know there are health issues, by the way. I know that. And there are uh, some legitimate work issues. Some of you uh, work in the evening. Some of you drive a long way to get here. We don't have one in your area. I understand that. It's completely legitimate. And believe it or not, I'm really not trying to twist anyone's arm. I'm not, but I'm your pastor, and I love you, and I'm going to tell you the truth. And I have a real desire to see every single one of us growing in discipleship and community groups are one of the best ways for that to happen because we interact in a way that we can't do on Sunday mornings. I don't know how to share the truth. Invite someone to church. If, if you love them, just bring them to church on Sunday. Surely you know by now that they're going to hear the truth when they come here. What could be easier, right? I don't know how to share the truth. I think we do. You just open your mouth with all the love that is in your heart. And you tell people what God has done for you in your own life. You share that truth coupled with the gospel, dripping in grace. Grace that says no matter where you are in your life, no matter what you're up to, 
No matter how messed up you are, I love you. In fact, I love you enough to tell you the truth. And I love you enough to take your hand and walk through whatever we have to together until you walk out of that mess you're in and begin walking in freedom that only comes by way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's love. Love tells the truth. And I love you. And I know you love me. That's what makes this church so special. Because it's full of the most genuine people that I've ever met in my entire life. What we have here really is something special. And there are a lot of people out there who need what we have in here. And if we're going to share this love with them, we're going to have to be willing to risk telling them the truth. Even if that makes us a little uncomfortable. Even if that means staying out late one night a week. Even if that costs us a little money each month. Because love tells the truth. Okay? Let's not keep it to ourselves. Let's pray.